everyone, and welcome to Standard Precautions and Beyond, Conversations in Infection Prevention and Control, a podcast of the Alabama Regional Center for Infection Prevention and Control, Training and Technical Assistance, or the ARC-IPC. With summer quickly approaching here in Alabama and the number of people participating in outdoor activities steadily increasing, vector-borne diseases are a significant concern for our community and for the nation. Vector-borne diseases, or diseases transmitted to humans through an outside vector, typically an insect, have influenced human health and behavior throughout history. Some common examples include the Black Plague being transmitted by fleas, or most recently, Zika being transmitted by mosquitoes. In this podcast, we will be discussing tick-borne diseases and why people in Alabama should be concerned and take preventive measures against ticks, especially during the summer months. Joining us today to discuss tick-borne diseases is Dr. Jonathan Rayner, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of South Alabama's College of Medicine and Director of the University of South Alabama's Laboratory of Infectious Diseases. Dr. Rayner received his PhD in microbiology at Colorado State University in 1998 as part of the Arthropod Born and Infectious Diseases Laboratory, where he studied the factors influencing vector competence for yellow fever viruses and dengue virus. He then completed two postdoctoral research programs with the American Society, the American Society for Microbiology, and the National Centers for Infectious Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Rayner has continued his work in the private sector until 2017 when he joined the University of South Alabama to direct their laboratory of infectious diseases. Currently, Dr. Rayner focuses on assessing pathogen-host interactions that contribute to the pathogenesis of emerging and re-emerging viruses, as well as mosquito-borne um, and tick-borne infectious disease surveillance efforts since 2018. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Rayner. Thank you. And after my, my long-winded discussion or introduction, we can go ahead and get started talking about ticks. Could you tell us a little bit more about ticks in general? Things like when are they usually active? Where are they usually found? Things like that. Sure. So um, ticks are obligate uh, blood-feeding ectoparasites, which essentially means that they have to take a blood meal between each stage of their life. Uh, there are actually four stages, um, eggs, larvae, nymph, and adults. Um, each of those stages uh, requires the tick uh, to, to take the blood meal. They will then uh, fall off of the host, uh, molt, and then can attach to a separate host. Um, so obviously as a blood feeding insect, they are um, a prime candidate for transmitting infectious diseases that may be found in the blood. Um, the ticks actually are most active during the spring, summer, and fall months. Uh, okay. Although here in Alabama, you will find them year-round. Um, in those more temperate okay. regions, uh, you will actually find them year-round. So what kind of ticks or what species of ticks are most commonly found in Alabama? However, the four-year survey that we conducted starting in 2018, the, um, the Lone Star tick was the most predominantly found tick in the state of Alabama, throughout the state of Alabama. Uh, this is known as Amblyoma americanum. Uh, it's actually a very uh, voracious, voracious uh, feeder, you know, and, and indiscriminate. 
So um, it can act as a vector for a number of important uh, infectious diseases of importance in, to humans. We also found um, uh, quite a few black-legged ticks or, or Ixodes scapularis. Um, these were found predominantly, however, on deer. And uh, as a result, we, we really only found adults uh, because that is the preference for those ticks. Um, other ticks that we found in less abundance include the American dog tick, Dermacenter variabilis, uh, as well as the Gulf Coast tick, Amblyoma maculatum. Are these ticks typically found in more rural areas or can they be found in, in less rural areas such as like city parks or, or things like that as well? So ticks like to feed wherever uh, the vertebrate host may be. So um, city parks, anything like that, certainly is not going to be free from the presence of ticks. It will really depend on how those areas are groomed. Uh, and you know what vector species may be present there. Uh, I believe you'll find them more frequently in those wooded areas associated with tall grasses, uh, leaf litter, those types of things. That's where you know they can stay uh, hydrated, moist, protected, and come into into contact with those uh, vertebrate hosts. Gotcha. And I know you mentioned deer as being one of the, the vertebrae hosts, and clearly humans are another possible host, but what other kind of common animals um, are they typically on? Um, I know dogs are a common one that people would think of. Yeah, so domesticated animals are um, relatively free from infestations because they are domesticated and we're providing them hopefully with medicines. If the dog is kept outside or a cat is kept outside, then certainly they can be a host. Um, but predominantly it's gonna be wildlife, uh, small rodents, rabbits, mice. Um, you'll have larger mammals, even birds. Uh, but then, as you said, deer. Uh, humans are not a typical host, uh, okay. simply because we, you know, our, our contact with them is, is relatively limited. Um, right? Most of us spend a, a right. good bit of time uh, indoors and video games has done a, a great job of helping limit the spread of some tick-borne diseases just because, you know, the kids are not in the woods playing, well, then the chances of actually getting um, exposed to a tick uh, decrease. And I know you mentioned um, the pathogens that these these ticks can spread. I know people are, are very often aware of things like Lyme disease, but I know from, from our background research and um, more common knowledge now, Lyme disease is typically not local to us and maybe one of the more extreme <laughs> options for a tick-borne illness. But what illnesses are, are typically seen in Alabama from ticks? or diseases, I should say. The, the most predominantly diagnosed tick-borne disease is spotted fever rickettsiosis. This is typically associated with that Gulf Coast tick. There's a rickettsia parkeri down here. They've also talked about spotted fever uh, rickettsiosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, for example. We don't really see that here. Um, that tends to be a more significant infectious disease. Uh, often resulting in mortality. Spotted fever rickettsiosis, uh, typically associated with a, a mild fever and a rash. Uh, 
doesn't really progress much beyond that. It all really depends on the immune status of the host uh, that it may be, come in contact with. Yeah, and I know in the in the past, historically, it, it seems that we maybe see less tick-borne diseases in the southeast than in the northeast. But with, with current trends in the news, it seems over the past few decades, that's been on the rise. I mean, I know one of your areas of research is keeping a handle on, on where those ticks are and kind of where they're spreading. What do you think is, is causing this and, and how could we kind of prevent being affected by it? Sure. And I think surveillance is the key, right? So yes, we, we hear a lot about tick-borne diseases in the Northeast, and that's because of the association with Lyme disease and the significant pathology and, and even chronic pathology that's associated with Lyme disease. Um, as we have started to look more frequently and, and specifically for these things, the, the CDC requires reporting of specific tick-borne diseases to get a better sense of that, right? And so we're seeing um, greater numbers of cases because I, I think we're looking for it more. Um, so when gotcha. reporting began, you know, back in, I think it was like 98 or something like that, we only had like five cases of spotted fever rickettsiosis. You look back at uh, 2018 and there were over 600 700 cases you know has anything changed between them as far as you know uh, what we do i would argue that we it, it hasn't changed right there were probably more people right. out in the fields and getting exposed they just weren't being diagnosed right this is all really dependent on the ability of the clinician to have the tests that are available and do the differential diagnosis to say, oh, you have spotted fever rickettsiosis. So that, that surveillance and reporting are very important is what I'm guessing. Yes, and, and for example, one of the things that we've learned in this four-year surveillance study that we did, spotted mm -hmm. fever rickettsiosis is the most predominantly diagnosed human, um, human tick-borne disease, but the, the tick, the Gulf Coast tick, and the pathogen, this Rickettsia parkeri, are actually found in low abundance. So the question that, that me and my colleagues have is, okay, if they're not here, then what actually is causing this number of, um, you know, spotted fever rickettsiosis cases? So what we find is that the Lone Star tick is found in extreme abundance and it is highly associated with uh, spotted fever rickettsiosis species that was previously not believed to be associated with human infections. And if you speak to the CDC, they'll tell you that those are probably misdiagnosed cases because um, you know the, the assays that they use are not very specific. So you get some cross-reactivity a person may have been exposed to that pathogen uh, because of having been fed on by the Lone Star tick, but that may not actually be what's causing the pathology that's observed. And very few, less than 10% of those cases reported to the CDC are actually confirmed. So I think it really speaks toward the need for uh, more significant um, surveillance programs 
to better understand the factors that are contributing um, to the diagnosis of these cases and the implications in, for human health. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad y'all are, are out there monitoring it then, especially for, for Alabama. Um, and I know you, you kind of touched on it a little bit when you mentioned immune systems, but are there certain people that are more vulnerable to tick-borne diseases? Yeah, I mean, anytime you're in a situation where you're immunocompromised, and certainly, um, you know, the, there's greater chances that uh, that disease can, can take a um, more significant or, or have a more significant impact on human health. So I guess we can, um, we're getting close to time, so we can, we can kind of wrap up. What's some advice or some resources you could recommend to the public to help educate people and, and help them understand better how to prevent that spread of, of tick-borne diseases and prevent themselves from getting bit by ticks? Yeah, so the thing, that, the thing is, is we want people to get outside, right? Uh, for a healthy immune system, body, all of that stuff, getting outside is really, really important. You know, unfortunately, by doing that, your, your risk of exposure to ticks increases. Um, so making sure that you're wearing appropriate repellents, that you're checking yourself after having gone outside, or even your pets. Um, oftentimes, pets can be a source for the tick because if they bring it into the house, the, the tick may drop off and then get on you um, after it's molted. You know, being aware uh, and, and realizing, especially in uh, Alabama, that you can be exposed to a tick throughout the year, that you will need to be diligent then about checking yourself, um, using uh, bug repellents, those types of things. The CDC actually has some really great resources uh, on um, the distribution of the ticks, the different types of ticks, what diseases they carry and resources that may be available for diagnosis. If you get a tick, you know, oftentimes it's a good idea to, to save that tick. Um, and if you start developing signs, you can actually take it with you to your doctor's visit. And they may even be able to test from the tick as opposed to trying to test from the individual. And then, you know, even resources on how best to remove, there's, there's all kinds of arguments of, of how you should best remove a tick. Uh, but they have resources there that will tell you, you know, how you should remove the tick, what you can do with it, those types of things. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I would never think to save the tick. But yeah, that when you think about it, that makes sense. Also, we'll have to share some of those resources as well when we when we share this podcast. But thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rayner. I know I've I've learned a lot about ticks now. <laughs> and thank you, everybody, for listening. Please tune in next time for another episode from Standard Precautions and Beyond. Conversations in Infection Prevention and Control with the ARC-IPC.